Welcome to the Concrete Solutions Network. I'm your host, Chris Kinnear, and joining us today is a very special guest, a local guest. His name is Ben Ball from American Restore at Huntington Beach. Ben, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks for having me, Chris. Oh, you're very welcome. Great to have you on board. How's everything by you guys there? Oh, it's a beautiful day in Southern California. On today's segment, folks, what we're going to be touching on is something that I know Ben and I have talked about and have gone through together uh, throughout the years that we've been working together. And that is something that seems so fundamental and yet oftentimes gets overlooked even by very good contractors. And that is the idea of just adherence to manufacturers' guidelines and recommendations for install of different products. And uh, we'll be exploring a little bit uh, from, you know, we'll be hearing from Ben and exploring a little bit of the you know jobs that he's been involved with where following those guidelines has served him and his teams very well. And then ironically, or on the flip side of that, we're also going to explore something a little bit on the contrary, and that is when and how, more importantly, to get a team, and this is going to be more for you, Ben, to talk about, but when and how to get a team to start adopting the mindset and uh, just the, the culture of when it's okay to think about, with the operative word there being think, uh, using products maybe in unorthodox ways to deliver an end game result to the client that's far beyond anything they or even the manufacturer could have thought of. So Ben, again, welcome to the show and give, give me an idea, Ben, from your standpoint. So you've been, you know, working with your crews on projects uh, all over the country, a lot of it here in California, the importance that you guys have found and the value that you've found in adhering to manufacturer guidelines as it relates to products that you guys install on projects. Well, I think you kind of touched on I me, mean, Chris, you know, you and I have been working together for you know, going on 10 years here and um, having that kind of collaborative effort um, on these types of projects is critical. Um, I do think there's a real team oriented kind of approach that needs to be taken. There's no one solution fits all in the injection world and working with the manufacturer, the client and the contractor kind of putting together and the engineer together to put together a program and a plan to attack a problem kind of really does take that kind of group mentality. And a big part of that is obviously the manufacturer's knowledge of their product, the ways that it can be used, the ways that it can't be used, the limitations and the implementations that it, it's best suited for. So, you know, I think having and approaching these problems from that perspective is really the best approach. And it all comes down to kind of starting, you know, with the initial intent of the repair and kind of going from there and bringing all the interested parties together to kind of get that clarified so that you can provide the best solution for the client at the end of the day. Yeah, very good points uh, to consider, Ben. And I, I couldn't agree more. And that, that segues me into something that um, I find oftentimes, and that is, you, you know, you get a lot of very knowledgeable, and I always say this, I, I call it the people with the 90-pound brains in the room, Referring to our engineering community, I mean, we have very, we're very fortunate to have here in the United States, uh, not to say that we're, you know, got the best engineers, but we do have a collection of very good firms from coast to coast, let's face it, that make uh, very calculated prescriptions on material selection and the like. But in my observation, and it's interesting from my standpoint as a technical representative for the organization uh, that I work for, to see kind of the the glaring inconsistencies on occasion between, for example, a leaking tank that's relatively new, okay, maybe a tank that's two to three years old that's got 
you know, enough steel in it to hold up the world that is clearly uh, not in any type of structural jeopardy. Yet shrinkage cracks have caused a series of leaks, right? I mean, two things that happen with concrete perpetually. We always joke in the industry. I'm sure you could side with me on this, Ben. Concrete's constantly curing and, of course, cracking, right? So um, the, the point here being <clears throat> the prescription of which type of a resin to use. Too many Uh-oh. times, in my, in my opinion, I've seen you know, a structural high modulus, low viscosity epoxy, which let me be very clear in the case of reinstating the structural integrity, remember, is absolutely the way to go. Get specified and prescribed to fix a leak in a tank. I mean, have you come across this in, in your travel? Yeah, I mean, well, all too often, I mean, I can't tell you how many times you get a phone call that says, I've got a, a crack in my concrete and I need some injection work done. And <laughs> yeah. that's kind of where the initial call and that's just the first step the real you got to backtrace from there and really kind of understand what the um structure is what the issues really are because cracks are as you mentioned you know you have everything from shrinkage cracks post you know seismic event cracks yeah to deflection cracking there's all sorts of different um cracks that can exist in a structure and the solution to fix those are very different um you know Oftentimes, you know, in our world, we see, you know, water intrusion is usually one of the kind of big signs that people point to because it's ugly on the outside of the structure. It's dripping through a parking garage or into places it shouldn't. And that's what raises the flags. But, you know, even from that perspective, when you say, okay, we need to do an injection, people's first inclination oftentimes is thinking about epoxy. And epoxy can work and it does fill and seal cracks. But really, those those structural epoxy injections are there to for for structural integrity. And so you've got to look at the crack, why it's there. What is it a moving crack? Are there forces that need to be addressed that are causing that crack Um, and backtracking to really narrow down the the reason for the crack, and then the prescription for what needs to be done to fix it. No, it's, it's very spot on, Ben. And, and it's, it's funny you mentioned uh, the epoxy thing. And I that segues me yet to another idea. And then we'll, we'll come right back here in a minute to the idea of the you know polyurethane injection, for example, as a very sound prescription for leaks. But epoxy, and I always tell guys this, and a lot of times, and nothing against them, the the guys who've been around a while, I, you know, you're old timers, so to speak. It seems every day I look in the mirror, I'm becoming one of them. But it's, you know, these guys, they'll throw a blanket term at anything liquid that comes in a, in a one to five gallon to 55 gallon drum. It all falls under the moniker of epoxy. And I it's funny, I don't want to sound like, you know, a grade school teacher and oh, tisk, 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 you know, it's it, not everything is epoxy, but the truth is that is what it is. Not everything is epoxy. So it's imperative. It has taken yeah. on kind of a general term, which it it isn't accurate, but um, you got to understand that when somebody may be asking for an epoxy injection, they may be using that in a way that you're not kind of thinking about it. You know, they're, they're thinking any resin is an epoxy. It, it, yep. They're very different. Yeah, they, they really are. And the other thing, too, and not to get so spun off here, we'll, we'll come back in a sec, but just to touch on it, you know, the the words and the vernacular in the industry, as it were, you know, grout. And that's one that really gets guys too. sure for somebody who's involved in the chemical grout realm will refer to non cementitious containing, you know, smooth resins as chemical grouts. And there, there are many of them and many brands and this and that. But it ultimately grout is another one of those tricky terms because we'll get calls in as well about guys hey do you guys have grout pumps of course and then we get to find oh yeah well i'm doing this and then and 
in just talking to them, you discover it's cementitious. Anyway, we, we both digress, I'm sure. So getting back to the idea of, you know, the, the proper prescriptive measures that, you know, we, we need to adhere to and we need to educate each other on and just keep current. And, and like you said, through all facets of the industry, be it the engineering community, the contracting community, and of course, the manufacturers is uh, the, the correct the correct tools for the job. Let's let's boil it down to what it is. And so on a leaking crack, for example, it's it's taking advantage of that uh, compression seal that you're going to achieve with a hydroactive urethane that's going to go ahead and expand and form a compression seal in that crack. That technology, that idea, that concept is one that's that once you have an engineer grasp that and they realize, hey, yeah, I've got a structure that's got no jeopardy to it in terms of the structural integrity. And I do have a leak and, oh, look at that. I can probably get a little bit bang, you know, more for my buck come from a contract admin standpoint, saving the job dollars by using an expanding urethane. They, it, quickly, you start to differentiate. I always say when guys call in, there's two very distinct forks in the road that you have to uh, commit to either one when you're, when you're describing and choosing what you want to do. Is there a structural fix at place? Yeah, well, then we're going to attack it as such. So, yeah, it's, I think it's good and it's important that um, installers just heed those guidelines. So I, I do appreciate your, your input on that. The other thing, too, Ben, is we were talking a little bit at the intro here about the idea of not necessarily being afraid to uh, not necessarily take risks, because I, I think the stigma of the word risk tends to have its connotation in the negative. But to onboard the idea and to pass it along to your team members. And now this is going to be more for you to speak about is, is this idea of kind of thinking out of the box and maybe attacking things or adding items to a given scope that really go above and beyond uh, to, to show a, a, you know, a step toward you know, a good faith effort in getting the job done, not only correctly, but given it that you know, cliche belt and suspenders and, and through thought, can you, you know, yeah, yeah. shed no, some light I, on that? I think what you're kind of getting at, I mean, it, it, as we were talking at the beginning here, you know, understanding the kind of intent of the repair and then translating that into kind of a specification of material, first of all, and then a kind of specification of the um, implementation and the kind of job process. The, the trick with these grouts and injection is the field implementation almost by necessity can't be fully prescribed. Every situation is slightly different. The, um, the flow of the grout in the crack, the spacing, the angles of the ports that are put in, all these factors, you know, you can try to set general um, guidelines, but in the field as they're, as they're implementing it, they hit roadblocks, whether it's rebar, whether it's a water stop that you didn't know was there, whether it's the flow of the water behind the wall, these different yeah. factors can um, cause different results that need to be adjusted on the fly. And because once the material's flowing in there, you've got a certain window to kind of do the right thing. And that's where spreading that intent of repair all the way from the kind of material specification, the engineering design down to the guy with the pump is so critical because that the guy in the field needs to know where, you know, what is the real goal here so that his adjustments reflect that. And so as he's, you know, he or she is putting the, the ports in and getting material flowing if they need to alter the original layout of the, the injection or the, the initial kind of volume of material that's being put in, where to seal the surface of the crack, where they should expect to see material travel to, all these things, you know, you cannot put on paper beforehand. 
and um, having a team that can kind of understand the nature of the material and understand the goals at the end of the day is, is I think, a huge factor and a huge critical um, part of making a successful project. Uh, ben, so well said. And you know what's interesting about, you know, our line of work and what we're involved in on a day-to-day is that, and I always use other uh, construction scopes to kind of put it in light, but I always tell people there's a lot of what we do that you're physically unable to see with your eyes. And it's amazing when you're talking about, for example, what they call a blindside injection. Well, it's got that nickname because, in fact, that's what we have going on. And it was never explained better to me than when I heard it one time from an industry veteran who's very well revered out there. Um, He told me he's local, too, by the way. He's in Southern California. He had a great analogy. And that was he said, you know, Chris, what I tell people about when and this is him talking to the to the clients when they're talking about pricing and because everybody wants to pin it down and you can't blame them. Um, You know, expenditures are tight, especially nowadays. Uh, We've got this this crisis going on and everything's tight to the vest. But um, people want answers. People want what's it going to be down to the teaspoon when it comes to material quantity? What's it going to be down to the nickel when it comes to the price of the job? And I think it's so imperative for people to understand the idea that, for example, on a blindside injection, this fella told me, Chris, what I tell my clients is if I give you a bucket of paint and a paintbrush and I put you four feet away from a wall and I have you take a couple steps in and start to paint that wall. And then when you think you're done, put your brush in the bucket, take a blindfold off. That was the other thing. He said he'd blindfold them. And then you step back thinking that you've got the entire wall painted blindfolded. And then when you unblindfold yourself, when someone takes it off, you reveal the actual misses that you've got. And in general terms, like 80 to 85% you're going to get, you have to address maybe another, you know, 15 to to 20% of that after the fact. And it's not ideal necessarily when hard numbers are being demanded at the top. uh, But I think it's imperative. And it kind of goes into what I I learned back in my days working at, uh, you know, on the general contracting side. Um, There was a very, very, very reputable brand out there, uh, very, very big name worldwide who, you know, has a lot of um, amusement park uh, development and things like that. You could probably figure out who we're talking about here. And they had a they had an approach. They had an approach called an integrated approach. Project IPD, integrated project delivery is what it was, where everybody came to the table ahead of anything being done that was of sizable value to where it was like, hey, guys, we're in this together. And in my travels, I've gotten I've had the good fortune to be able to talk to a lot of good installers and some guys who've been doing this for a long time. And it's amazing to see the tools that you can implement again on the contract admin side of of it all at the beginning of a job where you can say, hey, Let's build in a certain amount of dollars to the to the contract here to where after a given year's time, if for some reason what we've done reveals maybe that that, you know, 10, 15, maybe even 20 percent of of, oh, we didn't get it on a blindside injection, for example, you've got those dollars to tap into. And if they're not used, they go right back to the owner. So it's kind of a, a no harm, no foul when it's brought up at the beginning of it. So just for, yeah, for, no, the, list, yeah, for the listeners I, I, out there that are trying to get a little bit of the you know, the contract admin side, um, that that's a tool. I'm so sorry, Ben, go ahead. Oh, no, no worries. No, I mean, on that same note, I mean, that's, that's the challenge with these. And, you know, you're the wall analogy. And I've heard that before as well with the blindfolded painter. And, yeah. um, you know, the key is really at, in the same vein is, is having 
a bunch of different kind of tools in the toolbox and being able to kind of read the tea leaves of what the crack or the wall or the joint is telling you and being able to adjust and have those kind of predetermined and those conversations ahead of time. You know, when you're dealing with, you know, epoxies or urethanes, you know, you're oftentimes there'll be a lower viscosity version. There'll be a slightly different chemical or properties version that you may not need, but having that on the kind of on the truck there, ready to be implemented if it needs to be and having that conversation with the owner and say, Hey, listen, you know, if this doesn't get it here, we've got this tool ready to go. And, you know, like you said, if we don't need it, great. You know, that we save, save everybody some cost, but understanding that from the get go, because you do want to be able to make those decisions quickly. Cause when you're, yeah. when the material's flowing and you've got, you've got the wall opened up or you got the area shut down, you know, those those decisions can hold things up and kind of ultimately result in a higher dollar cost at the end of the day. And the more you can do to kind of try to anticipate challenges, get everybody on the same page ahead of time and have those things ready to go. You know, it really can lead to a much more successful project at the end of the day and, and a lower cost for, you know, the owner or the facility owner at the end of the day. That's a very good point, Ben. Ben, let me ask you, in, in your experiences, because you travel around quite a bit and you, you do quite a bit of bidding and, and you have a lot of work on the books, and, and thank goodness for that, in, in an environment, and again, not to harp on it, but especially now, and, and what I mean by that, obviously, let's call it what it is, the COVID-19 pandemic, people are, I think it's loosening, thank goodness, as well, but I think for the last couple, three months, we've seen a lot of, of tight fists on the dollars. Let's Let's call spades spades here. What would you say, roughly, of course, percentage-wise of the clients that you interface with, their receptiveness and their willingness to come to the table and collaboratively together before a nickel is spent, uh, what would you say that their receptiveness is on something like that to where you can offer these different options and they ultimately wind up saying, yes, let's move forward? Would you say that it's at, to your advantage when trying to procure a job with a client to just have everything out in the open like that or, or not? What, what, what do you have on that? I mean, my, my, our policy and my kind of general feeling is that, you know, the more information you can provide up front and the more kind of options and information helps them feel comfortable in making the decision to go forward. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. The, the more you kind of obscure, just kind of try to give a quick dollar number that's a lump sum. You know, the thing I always say is, hey, listen, we don't want to overcharge you. And we also aren't in this business to, you know, donate work. So right, let's right. try to be fair with everybody. And that message is usually pretty well received. And, yeah. you know, sometimes it's kind of tough to have that kind of conversation when the, there's a, well, there is a possibility that it can go to X. Yeah. But if you at least accept that, set that expectation um, off the bat, you know, when you when you are able to get successfully completed well under that, you know, they're they're relieved, but they're also, you know, it's out on the table and it's not a surprise when they're halfway through and say your wall's still leaking. Um, we need more money. And yeah, that's, that's a situation a that nobody wants to be in. And I think that's it's generally well accepted yeah. to at least have that out there. Yeah, I know our philosophy here is, you know, we, we train the, the brand new guys and stuff like that, especially when you're dealing with such. I don't want you know, concrete, no pun intended, right? But when when you have materials, and again, this is my standpoint from the material side of the house, when you've got materials that uh, are designed to perform a duty, okay, let's call it what it is in the field, and it's it's either going to do it or not going to do it. There's a couple things that go into that for, for myself and, and the rest of us here. It's imperative that we train and make known how these materials 
work and when they're to be employed equally as important, at least in my opinion, and I and I have most people agree with me on this, is when to say no. You know, the old Kenny Rogers, know when to hold them, know when to fold them. Knowing when to fold them, you, there, there's, I tell you, I won't get into the story, but it's very interesting. Chemical grouting in a nutshell, just as um, as an industry and as an activity holds a stigma and it's getting better, but you know, it still holds a little bit of a stigma and, and folks will say they'll throw the word voodoo out there, but it's amazing what happens when you're honest with folks and you tell them this is when you use it, this is when you don't. But most importantly, when to tell them no. When a guy yeah. or a gal calls in and they want to do this, this, or this, and you, you hear them out, you know, two ears, one mouth, listen twice as much as you speak is the old Chinese proverb, but it's listen to them. And if, if it's just not jiving, if it's just not going to work out, saying no is okay. And I think that uh, both on the manufacturer and contractor side is something that if, if more of us just globally as, as an industry get on board with, and I'd say the vast majority of us are, um, I think we'll just, we'll see, we'll see the value in that and we'll see yeah, and, uh, more confidence in the engineering community. And, and, in that same vein, you know, we're talking about getting people kind of on board with ideas or, you know, trying to limit the number of unknowns. You know, one of the approaches that I think is very valuable for people to understand, especially on a larger project where you're looking at something with a very similar condition, but over a large square footage, um, and is a is a mock-up location and oh, so really important. approaching approaching it let's see where we can get some representative location you know especially in the blind side applications where you don't know soil densities you don't know crack widths we don't know rebar density all sorts of unknowns on existing structures and if you can try to pick a representative location implement the solutions with the different tools in the toolbox all available narrow that down that can often be a great tool to help kind of, okay, well, yeah, the big X number is scary. Well, let's use, let's use a, a mock-up location to identify whether what the reality is. And from I can, there you I can, can extrapolate out. It still it doesn't remove all the variability there, but it really can narrow the kind of range heavily. That's such, such a good point. I mean, that is just, for, for the listeners out there, I mean, Ben just brought up something that is, it's such a safe smart, educated way to go about it. It ties, it, you know, they, they talk about injection in either realm, structural or um, urethane, more so on the urethane of being this blend of art and science. And it truly is. And we can cover that in another segment. But what, you know, Ben, what you just said there, I hope for the listeners out there, you guys are onboarding this, the mock-up, you know, as an institution, <laughs> pretty much it's the value that you get. And the the you know you put a put a certain dollar value at a mock-up those dollars are such smartly spent dollars uh another thing too that i recently picked up on with respect to that and i'm sure you've actually done this and seen this firsthand ben with a mock-up but that is you can also determine and i remember one guy that i deal with out in the rocky mountain state he's he's an incredible installer and i remember him telling the client uh, in front of all of us, we had a nice job walk. And he said, I want your absolute worst location. We're experiencing this, this infiltration coming. It was a parking structure. And I, I, I dug that. I really was fired up because it showed me, number one, that he's got a certain amount of courage and he's not afraid to dive head first, you know, in harm's way first, head first, you know, go right at it. And what he was able to do too is explain that based on the mock-up, what they can also do is they can go from super conservative to realistic, okay, in terms of the amount of, for example, in a blindside injection, mechanical packers, 
than any amount of resin. Granted, you may wind up down the road, uh, literally, you know, 100 feet down the line, there might be something like a void that'll gobble up some resin. But generally speaking, the educated scaling of what you can what you can predict and the scaling that you can you can come up with based on a 10 by 10, a 15 by 15, whatever it is, size mock-up. Ben, such a good point. I can't, I can't stress it. Yeah, and it, it also just gives you great feedback on, you know, we were talking in the beginning about kind of this, you know, the different solutions and the different um, available options out there. You know, we've done a lot of these mock-ups where, hey, you know, we don't, we can't say right off the bat exactly what will be the best. So let's great try point. a couple different products and a couple different methods and kind of see what the wall tells us or see what the slab and the concrete tells us. And take that information then back to the kind of design board and let's use that information to kind of better inform the processing or the material yeah. selection. Oh, that's that's such a good point, too, Ben. It's not so much the scaling as it is, yeah, material selection. You could wind up going in with one idea and, and completely change. Oh, uh, amazing. I And I know I get a little excited about the yeah, mock-up, but it's just, the thing is, it's just such an, to me anyway, it seems to be such an easy idea to implement again at the onset. So what it actually does is it takes that IPD approach from maybe a boardroom table out in situ in the field live so that we can tangibly take a look at what's happening. All right. You know, it's, it's one thing, yeah. you know, you could talk about how to hit a curveball all day long, but when you step in the box and you start stepping the right way and you go to right field with it, if you're a right-handed batter, of course, uh, you know, <laughs> Hitting those things in actuality is a completely different ballgame. So yeah, all good points. Yeah, and you could and you could bring you know there's different testing methodology from whether it's core sampling or um, you know GPR different things that you can use to demonstrate the effectiveness of it. And sometimes those physical examples or those kind of hard data that you can bring back to that boardroom table and say, hey, you know here's here's a solidified piece that we cored out after our mock-up and really show and demonstrate what is typically blind, but um, can kind of put eyes on it and give some concrete data and feedback to build confidence in the solution. Yeah, so you've just come full circle. That's absolutely brilliant. We went from, you know, the boardroom out to the field and brought it right back to the boardroom. That's just, that's the game. That's the yep. game in a nutshell. Ben, to close, just a few words on encouraging words, maybe for some of the contractors out there that want to onboard this kind of stuff. And I mean, you know, it's kind of funny, right? You have more competition, but no, just guys that are, <laughs> Hey, guys that want to expand their their culture and have their guys, their teams from from super down to foreman down to the guys just taking it on board and two weeks on with the with the team. What have been some of the ways and what are the tangible things inside the office in the warehouse that you you guys have done there to implement a, 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 an environment and to foster an environment in which guys are not, because construction by general rule, plans and specs, plans and specs, plans and specs. And that's very important. You have to, I mean, you can't willy-nilly things. You can't do what you want. I, I understand. But in this realm, okay, in the building envelope and the waterproofing and restoration realm, what have you guys done and what can maybe some of the listeners out there today on board as ideas to implement within their own teams to get uh, the message out to the group, hey, guys, it's okay to think out of the box. Is it as simple as telling them that that's the culture that you guys have there? Explain a little bit about how you guys have been successful doing that. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, I mean, it's hard to replace experience and getting out in the field and seeing different situations and seeing different ways thing materials and, and structures react to these types of processes is hard to replace. I, I, I always tend to go back to the intent of the repair. 
And I do think that's a kind of foundational question that needs to be understood by everyone from the top to the bottom as far as where we're trying to get this material to go. And what is the ultimate intent? Are we trying to stop gas? Are we trying to stop water? Are we solidifying soil? Are we, you know, gluing the slab back together with an epoxy? You know, what is the intent? And when you can keep that in kind of the front of the mind of everybody on site, it really helps direct kind of those creative solutions because, you know, you'll, it's, it's always amazing what, what guys come up with out there in terms of unique ways of delivering product in the right places, different ways of using activators or, um, you know, manufacture approved ways of kind of modifying the products to do things that you want them to do. But in order to kind of understand that, you have to start at the base of the intent of what you're trying to accomplish. And that's what I think is is really critical. And mm. taking the time to explain those the different situations and the different intentions to the guys really opens up that kind of creativity and that kind of field adaptation window. And it really lets everyone know that, hey, you know, yes, these are the means and methods. But if you've got another way of accomplishing the same thing, you know, let's talk about it. Unbelievably great. Unbelievable. I mean, fundamentals, right? Fundamentals, design intent. What is the goal? What are we trying to do? Ben, I, I can't thank you enough for uh, joining us today. I think it's been a very good session. I, I really, really want to thank you for the words of wisdom and sharing your experiences with us. Um, no, pleasure, Chris. Yeah, and we'll uh, we'll get on with it here and uh, wishing everybody safe and happy work. Folks, that's a wrap for today from the Concrete Solutions Network. Ben, thanks again for joining us. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Chris. Signing off all. Bye now.